Okay, so basically I'm going to talk about tree ratna, which seems quite a good idea for tree ratna night, doesn't it? And I shall just put my cards on the table. Basically, I'm going to tell you how fantastic tree ratna is, okay? And I'm going to tell you why you should throw yourself in to tree ratna and why that's the only solution for the world's problems. <laughs> so there you go. So I'm just laying that out. So if anybody thinks, I don't want to hear that, this is your moment. <laughs> and I'll come after you and get you. So I've just come from Adistana where we've had a Dhammacharini's area order weekend. Uh, Amitashuri was there. Shakyajata was there. And uh, it was a great weekend. It was very, very enjoyable. And... Um, well, there were great talks and things, but what I think was really enjoyable was just a lot of rejoicing. There was a lot of people kind of really rejoicing in Tri Ratna. The theme was something like the order as a system, as an open system. So we were using systems theory to kind of explore different aspects of the order. And we did some games and things. There were three really good talks. But I think what I just really enjoyed was just people kind of fairly unapologetically rejoicing in what we've got in Tree Ratna. And uh, my friend Kuladarni gave a talk yesterday morning. And uh, she started, was it, no, it wasn't in the talk, it was in one of the exercises. Somebody else, in fact, said, uh, it's so easy to use your critical faculty. And to look at something like Tree Ratna and just point out all the things that are not good about it, you know. It's really easy to just say, I think particularly when you're in the order. I think if you're preparing for ordination, there's a tendency to see the best. When you're in the order, sometimes people start kind of seeing a bit of what's not quite so good. So it was just lovely to have a kind of wholehearted rejoicing. So it's a wonderful thing that we have and I want to just share with you some of the reasons why I think it's wonderful. So it'll be a bit personal and quite a lot of quotes from Sangharakshita. So I'm going to begin by reading a poem of Sangharakshita's, which some of you will know quite well. Now I'm not a great fan of Sangharakshita's poetry. This has been recorded, isn't it? Oh God. <laughs> anyway, actually he knows I'm not a great fan of his poetry, but I won't tell you the story behind that. But anyway... I do like this one, not so much for its poetic value, but for the message that it gives. So it's called The Four Gifts. I come to you with four gifts. The first gift is a lotus flower. Do you understand? My second gift is a golden net. Can you recognize it? My third gift is a shepherd's round dance. Do your feet know how to dance? My fourth gift is a garden planted in a wilderness. Could you work there? I come to you with four gifts. Dare you accept them? So this was a poem that Banti wrote in 1976. So the movement and the order were still young. They were quite young. And these four gifts were what he felt he was given to the world in forming what was then the FWBO and the WBO. So hold that thought, and I'll come back to it. So I thought I'd just say a little bit about my own personal connection with the movement. 
So I got involved in, well, what was the FWBO in 1977, when I think I was probably having a nervous break then, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, I just, I was very driven, basically. I was very driven in a lot of ways. And uh, I'd been very driven in the political kind of world and um, had become very, very disillusioned with that and was kind of really looking for something. But I wasn't, I didn't really want to give up this possibility of changing the world. I think I really believed that you could change the world. And I'd tried various politics. I'd started as a communist and then going a bit further left. And I'd kind of, I'd, I'd been a bit involved in various um, other movements. The women's movement, of course, I'm of that age. Uh, LGBT, which wasn't called that then, of course. Um, so I was quite involved in a kind of political world, and one by one, they all kind of dis- I got quite disillusioned. Partly because what I could see was while the theories were so beautiful, the actuality of the people were just people. And in fact, there was so much factionism and anger, and that in a way, I just couldn't really quite hold it. So I was in Glasgow in 1977 and uh, I thought I was pregnant. So I went to have a pregnancy test and you used to have to take, you took a little sample of urine with you in those days. You couldn't do home tests so I had to go to the pregnancy advisory or something and uh, see some of the women in here nodding, you've obviously been in this position. And I was desperately, desperately did not want to be pregnant. I just didn't know what I'd do. I was in no fit state to have a child. I'd never went to have kids. I wouldn't bore you with the details of how I'd got there. (coughs) But anyway, um, many mistakes had been made. (laughs) And uh, I sat in this pregnancy advisory place waiting for the women to come back and give me the news. So she came back and she said, um, well, I'm very sorry, but you're not pregnant. I was like, yes! Kiss, 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 which I think she was a bit surprised by. Um, and I just, while I'd been sitting waiting, it was like about five minutes or something, you know, or an eternity. And I sat there thinking, oh, I've got to change my life. I've got to change my life. This just, I'm in a, I'm just, I must change my life. And I'd kind of realised that you couldn't really change the world unless you change yourself. I mean, I, I, in retrospect, I'd realised that. I wouldn't have articulated it like that. Anyway, I think got to change the world. I've got to, I mean, I've got to change myself. I really have to change my life. And I walked out of this pregnancy advisory and there was a poster up on the wall which said, Change Your Life. <laughs> and it was uh, a scene from a Glasgow docks. And it was a really iconic scene from my childhood. And I thought, okay, I'll do it. So I phoned up the number and it was the Glasgow Buddhist Centre. And if you think I've got a, I had a strong Glaswegian accent, did you know Ajita? Any of you? Any of you ever met Ajita? Well, I sound like, you know, I'm from very middle-class English in comparison. He had a really, really strong Glaswegian accent. Anyway, he said, oh, just come up tonight. There was a class on. So I went to the class. And there's quite good stories in there, but I'll leave them for another time. But basically, I I heard a a talk by Sangharakshita in which he said... Uh, He was talking about different views of the spiritual life. And he said, the first view that we must change the system is generally regarded as a secular view. 
And the second, that we must change ourselves, is regarded as the spiritual view. Personally, I cannot agree with either view. In fact, they're not mutually exclusive. A bit more than he says. The FWBO does not share the view that we must improve ourselves and then everything will be all right. The world will be a better and happier place. In the FWBO, we are certainly concerned with the development of the individual. We see this as crucial. But we also know that we must transform the world. We recognise that external conditions help or hinder. Thank you. It was exactly what I needed to hear, really. So I was completely hooked. And uh, it was one of four talks of a series that were called Buddhism for Today and Tomorrow. And those four talks had the same message that the poem had. The talks were given in 1977. And it's quite interesting. Sangharakshita was obviously trying to give the same message through different media, different uh, ways of approaching it. So he did it in a poetic way, which was quite enigmatic, actually, unless you unpack it. But then in these talks, he very definitely gave... um, quite a a strong sense conceptually of what he felt we could offer to the world. So the first, I'm going to just correspond them a little bit. Um, So these four talks were called A Method of Personal Development, The Nucleus of a New Society, sorry, A Vision of Existence, Nucleus of a New Society, and A Blueprint for a New World. So... I mean, they just were right up my street. I couldn't have found a better series of talks to start with because they were, in a way, laying out the fact that Buddhism, as Sangharachita understood, it wasn't just a sense of personally developing, but to actually be able to transform the world, we needed to start with where we were ourselves and we needed to work with ourselves. So the lotus from the poem, the first gift is a lotus flower, So the lotus is a very poetic way of talking about personal development. So the lotus is very ubiquitous and it's ubiquitous in Buddhism. And it's a symbol of growth. And one of the beautiful things about the lotus is that it symbolizes the fact that the lotus grows from the mud. And that wherever we begin, however difficult our conditions are, however muddy the start might be, we can blossom into something spectacularly beautiful because the lotus is really beautiful. In fact, the first talk that we had in our order weekend was called If the Order Was a Lotus, How Would It Blossom? And Kemasuri, who gave it, spent quite a lot of time talking about the wonderful qualities of the lotus, including some things that I didn't know. So if you're interested in that, you should listen to her talk. Um, So it's a lovely image for a method of personal development. It's a lovely image for finding a way of just being where we are, starting where we start, and trusting that with the right conditions put into place and working on ourselves, we actually can grow into something very beautiful. And then there's the net, the golden net. So that corresponds with a vision of existence. And in the talk on the vision of existence, Sangharakshita talks about right view. And he talks about Paticca Samudpada. He talks about conditioned co-production. 
conditionality. And it's quite interesting that the image that he gives in the poem is a net, a golden net. Because what that says to me is interconnectedness. And I think what it's saying is that all of our actions have consequences, not only on ourselves as the agent of the action, but also on our environment, the people around us, the world that we live in. So I think it's a really beautiful image for that vision of things as they really are. And then the dance. And this is a shepherd's round dance. Actually, I've never found anybody that knows what a shepherd's round dance is. I suspect it might just have fitted in with the rhythm of the poem. (laughs) But I might be wrong about that. Um, Do your feet know how to dance? So if that connects with the nucleus of a new society, that nucleus of a new society talk talked about the formation of the order and the movement. So again, it's a lovely image to think of the order and the movement as a dance. You know, something, a mandala, something that shifts and changes. And and not everybody's necessarily doing the same steps. It's not necessarily a military two-step. You know, not even a gay Gordon's necessarily. It could be quite uh, loose. It could be five rhythms. It could be any kind of dance. But it's a dance which takes in other people. It's a dance in which each person has their own place and their own steps, as it were, but those steps bring them into relationship with the others in the dance. So again, it's a really lovely image. And the garden is a blueprint for a new world, and it's a garden in a wilderness. And he's asking, are you ready to, will you work there? So again, the garden, the the new society, is the effect that we as an order, as a movement, as Buddhists can have on the world. And how we take our practice and our values out into the world and into relationship. And the the talk that we had yesterday morning was called The Order at Play in the World. And I really like that image, you know, because sometimes we go, what is your altruistic activity? You know, can sound a wee bit like, I don't know, oh, well, I, you know, I take food to the homeless or something. I don't know. It can just sound all a bit kind of worthy in a particular kind of way. Whereas the idea of a play, you know, the order at play in the world, I really like as an image. So how can we take the joy that we find in our practice and create conditions that actually allow others to experience that joy? <clears throat> and I guess at the end of the day, they're all very connected. They're not necessarily separate. Because the work that happens in the garden, in a way, I don't mean to kill the metaphor, but you know, we're dancing in the garden, it's play in the garden. We're cultivating, but we're cultivating a new society by our joy and by our play. And we can only do that to the extent that we actually... Uh, do have a method of personal development that we allow ourselves to open like lotuses so there's obviously a pond in the garden and to the extent that we have the vision of things as they really are because otherwise we can't really work our work will just become a shoring up of our ego it will become something that gives us identity rather than work which actually offers itself freely and from love So those four talks were Bhante explaining what the FWBO as it was then could offer the world. 
And I think it was good I came across the talks rather than the poem to begin with. I think I could read the poem through having heard the talks. I'm not sure I would have gone through the poem to look for the talks. But what seemed very clear to me were both those media, both the poem and the talks, was that Banty desperately wanted a context to give something to the world. That he'd come back from India, <coughs> he'd come back to live in the UK, in London, and he desperately wanted to create conditions for people to grow. He really wanted to do something that would allow the maximum number of people to meet the Dharma and transform their life from it. And I'm sure some of you have probably read or heard in one of Banti's, uh, it's in another, another talk, it's probably, in, I think it's actually in the same series, I think it's in the Nucleus for a New Society, where he talks about how he had this moment of choice and he's in Calcutta, I think it is, and he gets this letter from the group that were supposed to be going to sponsor him to come back to the UK and they've written saying, don't come back, we don't want you. And this is great. So they say to him, why don't you write us a letter saying you've decided not to come back? And we'll publish it. And then you don't have to come back. Now any of you who know Sangharakshita to any extent will know that this was not a strategy that would have worked. He would not passively go, oh that's a good idea. Yeah, I better not go back. They don't want me. I'll just write this letter. If anything... I think it was a very determining factor for him in deciding to come back. But he talks about how there was this moment where he just read the letter and he's with a friend and he says to the friend, you know what this means, don't you? And the friend says, no, as most of us probably would. And he said, this means the formation of a new Buddhist order. So it's on that basis that he returns to England. But he says he stood there and he thought, I could stay in India... I've got a vihara. I'm running this um, association that I run. I'm teaching the Dharma. I've got my teachers here. They support me. I've got economic stability. I've got a lovely life. I could stay, or I could go back to England, where they've just told me there's no support for me, where every door is going to be closed against me, I'm told, and where I won't have any income, I don't know anybody really these days. And he stands there and weighs it up. And when I first read that, I thought, oh my goodness. That's quite something, isn't it? Anyway, he says it. Not, it's, it says something like, it's not often that one's choice opens up so clearly. And he just knew he had to come back to England and form this new Buddhist order. So here we are, nearly 50 years later chucking along and he, so he'd seen that need and he'd come back especially to do that and he was very clear that what he wanted to form was a community and not an association he didn't want to form something that you paid a subscription to join partly because he'd seen how corrupt that system could become he wanted to form something that to join as it were you had to dedicate your whole life you had to commit yourself to doing that you couldn't just do it as a Sunday hobby. It really had to be something central to your life. And he wanted a community of practitioners. He wanted people that would practice the Dharma, not just read about it or theorize about it. They were the things that he felt were very important. 
And he wanted to offer a way to change the lives of the people that he'd met in England in the previous visit that he'd made uh, the previous two years. He'd seen that there was potential. And it's quite interesting. This is 1967. And, I mean, it was such a time. It was such a time. You know, there was such a ferment of change happening and, you know... There was a sexual revolution, there was, you know... We had it great, in some ways, that generation. So he really wanted... I think he felt that there was a real fertility for ideas and for a practice community to grow. So he saw... He came back and he gave us those four gifts. He was responding to a need that he saw, and he was responding to the cries of the world. Many years ago in the early 90s, I went on a tour of our centres in America, Libanti. And uh, I spent eight weeks, I think it was, travelling around the States, visiting our different centres. And, uh, and when there, was some, there were some ordinations happened, Karen Adavi and Saramati were ordained. And there was a whole day sort of festival around the ordinations, and I gave a talk at it. I was sandwiched between Manjavadra and Sabuti. Manjavadra talked about the significance of these ordinations for the world, for, for America. I talked about the significance of ordinations for the world. And of course, Sabuti talked about the cosmos. So <laughs> I went to the cosmos, but I only got the world. So anyway, in this talk, I got really ex- inspired and a bit carried away. And it's actually quite nerve-wracking having Banty sitting there when you're giving a talk. And he'd introduced us and he was sitting there. So I'd kind of forgotten he was there for a bit. He was just sort of there. And uh, just imagine that Manisha's Banty, right? So there. You can sort of see the resemblance, actually, can't you? And... uh, (laughs) That spiritual glow that's just glowing forth. So... Um, anyway, I was giving this talk and I got a bit carried away and I was saying, our order is founded on Sangharaksha's Bodhisattva ordination. We are his response to the cries of the world. I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, that's quite strong, isn't it? But anyway, he was sitting going like that. He was nodding, so I thought, Phew. So that was good. So I thought, well, I really believe that, you know, that we are the expression of something which was a huge part of Sangharaksha's own practice and his own development in a way and we've given an outlet to that so aren't we good aren't we kind um, and so that was set up in a particular time and they were the things that Banty brought and offered those four gifts those four things from those talks and in the latter one about uh, the new society he talks quite a lot about some of the world's issues and problems Well, society has changed a lot since then. I mean, that was 1976. Much has changed in society, but personally, I don't think it's got any better in many ways. I still think that Sri Ratna has much to offer the world. I still think the world needs the values of the Dharma. And I think, I don't think we're the only organisation that has something to offer the world at all, but we're the one I'm in, so... We're the one I'm talking about. And I just think, you know, the world really needs dharmic values. Greed, hatred and delusion still stalk the earth. 
They stock the earth in many forms. They stock the earth in many guises. And in fact, they're bigger, more seductive than they've ever been. So I still think the Dharma has much to offer. So all of that was by way of introduction to say that um, I wanted to just share these six emphases that are the characteristics of Tri Ratna. So Dainandi mentioned that Bhante had said he wanted people to talk about these. So uh, at the last college public preceptors meeting in November, Mokshananda went to visit Bhantini. He made a little video. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's on the Buddhist Centre online. It's quite a sweet wee video, actually. It's, um, it's, in the, it's in the middle of a video about the college meeting itself. It's a good video, actually. You should watch it, because it's also got Vajragita in it, who died very soon after. It was like about a month later or less. And she's talking, and he's videoed her Skype conversation. And there's a bit of it where she's talking about death her own upcoming death. There's also a little snippet of this interview with Bhante. And he said to Bhante at the end, is there any message you want me to give the college? You know, we're all sitting here meeting. And Bhante said, hmm. He thought, apparently thought for a bit, and then he said, yes, tell college members when they're out and about giving talks to talk about the six characteristic emphases of Tri Ratna. So when I couldn't think of what to talk about, I thought, oh, that's a good idea. I'll talk about the six characteristic emphases of Tree Ratna. So, what are they? Some of you are asking yourself. And of course, some of you are just, they know, you know them. You just Actually, it's quite funny. When Banti says this to Mokshananda, Mokshananda says, hmm, would you like to remind us what they are? <laughs> and Banti says, no, I don't think there's any need to do that. <laughs> Then we sat in the college meeting and most of us could remember. So these six things which are central and defining characteristics of Tri Ratna are first of all the centrality of going for refuge. So you'll have heard all these before in different forms. Secondly, it's a united order. In other words, it's an order in which men and women have equal ordination. Thirdly, we approach the Dharma through a critical ecumenicalism, which is a bit hard to say, actually, let alone do. Then the next characteristic is Kalyanamitrata, or spiritual friendship. The fifth is team-based right livelihood. And the last one is our emphasis on the arts. Okay, so I'm going to just look at a little bit of each of them, and then I'll finish. So the centrality of going for refuge, I think it's very easy for us to take for granted that that's what Buddhism is, you know. Especially those of us who, you know, were born and bred into Tri Ratna and haven't come via other organisations, movements, communities. The, the centrality of going for it, that, that's something that we imbibe very quickly. You know, somebody asks you about Buddhism, most of us know that, that, well, what's central to being a Buddhist? We go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, and that is the defining act of a Buddhist, and it's what makes us a Buddhist. But actually, it's quite radical to state it quite like that, and the implications of it are quite important. 
So one of the main implications of that is that we are neither lay nor monastic. And again, we are neither lay nor monastic. We, we can trot that out quite easily. But what does it actually mean? What does it mean that we are neither lay nor monastic? Well, it doesn't mean that we are neither lay nor monastic. It means that we are something that's over and above that division. So... Within the order, there will be people practicing in what might seem like a more monastic style and people who are practicing in what might look like a more lay style. But those people who live in what might look like a more lay lifestyle are not lay practitioners. They have fully and utterly committed themselves to Buddhism. They've become a member of a Buddhist community, a Buddhist order. And those of us that are living what might seem like a more monastic lifestyle aren't monks or nuns. You know, we're still living the same precepts, the same um, commitment that our brothers and sisters are living. So this is quite something. One of the things that I've done over the years sometimes is go to a meeting called the Buddhist Teachers of Europe, which I think, have you started going to that? No, I will. You will, yeah. Well, it's an it can be an interesting meeting at times. And uh, I've got to know quite a lot of... It's a meeting, you know. And uh, we all know what meetings are like. And um, some years ago we had this... We were having a discussion about... I can't remember what the theme was exactly, but there was a woman there who's from a Zen group in France. And she's lay, you know, as in she's not taking a monastic ordination. But she was just commenting that in actual fact, her practice was so much more full-time than the monks in her order, who would kind of, you know, come in and do a talk or two and then off they'd go. And she, she said she felt confused because she, there was no way she was going to become a Zen nun in this particular community. She's married, she's, you know, she has a family. But her whole life, her entire life was devoted to the Dharma. In fact, she runs a little Zen, um, she runs a Zen group in Paris. And somebody else at the meeting uh, said, well, that's what Sangharakshita saw all those years ago. And it was just quite interesting because I was sitting thinking it, but it was so much better that somebody else said it. You know, it was actually, it was Shen Pen Hukum, I think, as some of you know. And she said, but that's what Sangharakshita saw. He saw that in the West we were going to have to have a different kind of ordination. So that, I think that's quite important for us to recognise. That our ordination, so we're called Dharmacharis or Dharmacharinis, which means one who walks in the Dharma, one who, whose path is the Dharma. So that's putting that very centrally. Um... So Bhante says, um, what is the common principle that holds us all together? It's our common going for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. Members of our order come from different backgrounds, lifestyles, but overriding everything is the fact that we are all going for refuge. He says quite a lot, actually this was from this... I've got some stuff here from a talk he gave in 1999 called Looking Ahead a Little Way. Uh, but I'm not actually going to read it all, it's quite long. But he does make very strongly the point that it's our going for refuge that makes us Buddhists. It's not the clothes that we wear, 
the way we have our hair or the lifestyle that we lead, but the centrality of our going for refuge. So I'm probably labouring the point to people that know this. Please accept my apologies. But I think it's worth saying it, actually. It's just worth remembering how important that fact actually is. And that for somebody who wants to enter our order, that's what they're doing. They're deepening their going for refuge. They're not actually signing up for a particular way of living. They're living within their own conditions and they have to go for refuge within their life, whatever that looks like. And sometimes it looks quite different. So sometimes you look at somebody and they're ready for ordination, but they're not, they don't seem to be ticking some of the boxes. And other people seem to be ticking all the boxes, but they're not quite there yet. Because it's something quite... Um, it's, it just isn't going to necessarily look the same. There's not a one-size-fits-all for that. We used to say commitment is primary and lifestyle is secondary. But in, nine, in 2000, Banty said he was fed up with that, actually. Because he felt so many people used it to justify doing whatever they liked. Because they'd say, my commitment's primary. So it doesn't really matter what I'm doing, which obviously was not what he meant. So he changed it in 2000 in a talk and he said, commitment is primary, ethics are secondary, and lifestyle is tertiary. So there you go. So that was interesting. He put ethics in there. So in a way, I guess what that's saying is the centrality, the going for refuge is what makes us a Buddhist. Our ethical practice of following the ten precepts is how we put that into action. So it's not that nothing matters, it all matters. And then the lifestyle that we choose will support that to a greater or lesser extent. Okay. As I say, look, I feel slightly apologetic actually because I suddenly think this is all very familiar territory and you probably all know this already. But I'm going to carry on. So we're a united order. And again, I think we can take this for granted wasn't always that easy to take it for granted. There were times when it didn't feel like a united order. It felt like a men's order with a few straight women wandering around. That changed quite a while back. But certainly when I, when I got ordained, there were, I think, about there were 200 and something order members, 19 women. I was the 19th woman to get ordained. Um, these days, I have actually got the figures on my phone, but... Uh, I can't remember exactly the proportion, but it's changed quite a lot. I can look in a minute if you're really interested. So it's quite interesting because sometimes Banty gets accused of being misogynistic. Yeah, And uh, I remember the first time I met Joanna Macy, who some of you will have come across her stuff. I met her years ago in Spain, and I said I was parami and blah, blah, blah. And she said, oh, you're one of Sanger Axter's lot. I said, yep, I certainly am. She said, oh, great, you know, I've always wanted to meet a woman disciple of Sangha, actually. I thought, oh, God, here we go. So she said, I find him very confusing. I said, yes, join the club. She said, because in the, on the one hand, he makes comments which seem quite misogynistic. But on the other hand, he has these women in the order. And I find it quite confusing. She said, sometimes he seems very conservative and sometimes he seems quite radical. I said, yeah, you've got it. That is true. And some, it depends, you know, if you take Bante out of context, quite often it's quite weird. But where the misogynistic comment came from, 
was to do the comments that Bhante made, which were a reflection in the Buddhist tradition, which said that at the beginning part of people's practice, it seemed to be easier for men to make the sort of plunge into the spiritual life than it seemed to be for women. So that comment was, was heard by some as misogynistic. It's never been my own experience that Bhante's been misogynistic at all. But I don't think he totally... Un- I, don't, I think at times he's not completely understood women. And I don't think he's always understood the processes that took place in the 60s. You know, he went off to India from a certain society and he came back to something very different. So I think in some ways... Well, his comments were straight out of the Buddhist tradition, and his experience had coincided with that. And certainly in the early days of the movement, it was also the case that men would come along on the whole generalisation, totally generalisation here, because of course everybody's different, but often you know, men would come along and within a very short space of time they'd know what they wanted to do, they'd know they wanted to be, get, get ordained, and they would just go for it. Women, on the other hand, often would take quite a while to make their minds up and then they would be unsure and then they would decide they did and then they would decide maybe they didn't. And, and it did seem to be quite a pattern. So in 1983, all of us who were ordained, all the women that were ordained, which was, I can't remember how many of us went, I think it was 19 actually, there'd been a couple more ordained, but somewhere outside the UK. Anyway, we all went off to a Scottish island together, the Isle of Muck. And we spent a month on this Scottish island. We actually doubled the population of the island. <laughs> it's a wee island. And uh, we just spent a month together, practising together and just talking about things. It was quite a dramatic thing to do, though it doesn't sound particularly dramatic. When we decided to do it, the metros went, oh, no, you can't, you can't possibly leave us. And the men, order members said things like, but who's going to run the classes and who's going to do this? Anyway, we went. And it was a really good thing to do. It was quite, um, I mean, we just practiced together. But we also talked a lot about what we thought as women, order members, we needed to do to help more women get ordained. Because at that point, there would be like one, two, maybe three women getting ordained in a year. And, you know, it wasn't that we were competitive or anything. But at the same time, the men had started doing these long retreats in Tuscany. And they were getting ordained in groups, lots of them at a time. So we wanted to know what we could do. And actually, after this is great, after a lot of discussion and a lot of heart search and a lot of thinking, we decided the main problem was lack of confidence. And that, that was and it was lack of our own confidence in thinking that we could really offer something. And it was also lack of confidence in people coming along. Now I think society's changed such a lot since then. I mean, most of my friends of my age who have daughters and even granddaughters, you would not look at these girls and think, mm, lack of confidence. You know, there's a real change has happened. Anyway, I'm diverging slightly. But I think when Sangharakshita came back from India and the society that he walked into, it was in that kind of turmoil phase of women starting to realise that they really could stand on their own feet and they really could, we really could. Sisters could do it for themselves, we were realising. Anyway, on the other hand, right from the word go, we've always had equal ordination. And there's never been any position in the movement that's not been open to a woman, that's open to a man, unless it's a gender-specific role. You know, so like a men's 
Mitra convener or a woman preceptor is going to be gender specific. But there's nothing else in the order of movement that isn't open to either a man or a woman. And again, actually, that was quite radical in its day. You know, that was something that Banti did, and he got quite a lot of criticism about it from other, other teachers, other movements. So, important to remember that actually this was quite revolutionary, and Banti himself said in the same talk that I mentioned before, we don't always realise how revolutionary this is within the context of traditional Eastern Buddhism. In traditional Eastern Buddhism, ordination is not open to, full ordination is not open to women. In the case of our own order, it has been one of our basic principles, our fundamental emphasis since the very beginning, and we should be proud of that fact. So, there you go. It's probably one of the reasons why I got involved and got ordained in this particular order, because I think I would know, I think I'd have struggled. Well, I struggled anyway, because it wasn't always easy. But I think I'd have struggled quite a lot if I'd gone somewhere where women couldn't have full ordination. So. Okay, so the third emphasis that Banti has drawn out is what he calls critical ecumenicalism. Initially, it was just ecumenicalism. So ecumenicalism means that we draw from all the different schools of Buddhism. So we used to get accused of just being a bit, you know what was the word, overly eclectic, just kind of, we don't really have a tradition because we just take something from everywhere. And I think maybe that's why Banti brought in the critical aspect of it, critical ecumenicalism. What it means is that we don't belong to any particular school. So we don't belong to any particular yana. We're not a Theravadan group. We're not a specifically Mahayana group. We're not a Vajrayana group. But yes, we can draw inspiration from the Pali Canon, from the Mahayana Sutras, from the teachings, from the, you know, the whole vast array of teachings that Buddhism has given to us. But Bhante asks us to take all of those as inspiration, but to read them critically and to read them through our understanding of Paticca Samudpada, to use that as our basic underlying touchstone so if you're more interested in that, there's a paper which some of you will have read called Revering and Relying on the Dharma, in which Sabuti and Banti go into this in quite a bit, about how we're open to all the schools of Buddhism, but we're critically, we, we approach them um, not in a sort of cherry-picking way, but we, we're very clear what the fundamental... It's a bit like if you think of a tree... <coughs> Yeah, there's this tree which is grown from the teaching of the Buddha. The roots are deeply in the Buddha's own teaching. And then out of that tree, different branches have grown. So we can take our inspiration from any of the branches. But if we go too far along a branch and lose the roots, then we're in danger of losing um, what's central. And in another paper that was done, and this is quite interesting, um, another paper that came out a couple of years ago called Initiation into a New Life. And, oh, well, no, actually it wasn't, sorry. It was later, it was Budophony. We had, we've had a whole series of like about nine papers over the last six, seven years, six years. 
And one of them called Bodofany, it's great. It's about him had done a big long paper called Reimagining the Buddha, 60 pages long or something. And then Banti did a summary of it in 12 points. I just thought it was great that Sangharakshita was actually summarising anybody because he's not exactly succinct a lot of the time in his particular writing, you know. Anyway, this was very succinct and it was 12 points and one of them was, we are not a continuation of the Tibetan tradition. And when this first came out, a lot of very good friends of mine, including lots of public preceptors, were saying, oh no, what does this mean? Does it mean we're not allowed to chant the Padmasambhava mantra or we can't visualise green Tara? And it doesn't mean that at all. What Sangha actually meant by that is that we can look to the tradition of the Buddha and we can take what inspires us, but we, we have our own authority, as it were. So he said to me in a conversation, he said, Tara doesn't belong to the Tibetans. You know, they've envisaged her in a particular way. And if that particular way appeals to us, then allow it to open our hearts. But the important thing is that we open our hearts to compassion, whatever compassion looks like. So compassion might look like green Tara, it might look like another Lakavalukateshva, or it might just feel like an opening of the heart in response to suffering. It might not look like anything. So I think that's what he was trying to say. Go behind the forms and the figures and see what these principles are and open ourselves up to them. Okay, the next one, Kalyana Mitrata, spiritual friendship. I mean, gosh, there's lots one can say and one has said. This one and other ones have said lots and lots and lots about Kalyanamitra. And it is one of the things that people often find very attractive about the Tri Ratna uh, community is that we put such an emphasis <coughs> on friendship. Did I give a talk here? Some of you would have been, because I think some of you have been whenever I've given a talk. Did I give a talk here where I talked about these people feeding back to me about. I'll just repeat it anyway. Um, so. I had this this conversa- had a conversation with two people that I knew in quite a sh- short space of time. Right, They were both ex-Mitras. Well, one of them was an ex-Order member, actually, and the other one was an ex-Mitra. And the ex-Order member said to me, oh, she said, nobody does Sangha like the FWBO. And it was really heartfelt. It was really sort of like... She'd actually taken ordination in another tradition by this point. And... Um, she said the thing she really, really missed was spiritual friendship and having peers and having people that she could share her life with in a particular way. The other person, the ex mitra said to me, God, nobody does single at the FWBO. <laughs> exactly the same words, very different tone, very different expression on the face, very different body language. And I thought, that's quite interesting, actually. And I think they were both right. I think for good and for bad... Nobody does Sangha quite like Tree Ratna. In the sense that we give it such importance that it's so crucial and it can be so intense that when it goes off a bit, it can be so painful. But I think it's only painful because it's so important. You know, if you think sometimes we end up with a bit of disharmony occasionally between people, even in the order. And it feels so painful, I think, because if you get out of harmony a bit with somebody that's not that important to you, you can kind of walk away from it, to some extent anyway. I mean, maybe that's more easy or more difficult for different people. But, you know, if you're out of harmony with somebody in the Sangha, you, can't, you cannot walk away from it. 
It's there, it's part of your life and your experience because you see these people all the blooming time. You're tripping over them at order events, you know, and they're always sitting right next to you in the shrine room. You know, so it's like because, partly because we give such importance and centrality, but it's also such a crucially important part of who we are. When I just tell you about this wee exercise, I wonder if I could even do it here. I do it. Yeah, the one. Okay, so could three people stand up, please? I'm not sure how well it will work here. It worked within the order. It might do. Could three people just stand up, please? Any three? Come on, don't be shy. Chop, chop. Okay? All right, we've got three. Got three. Anybody in the room who has a formal relationship of Kalyanamitrita with these people, could they stand up? Okay. Like you're somebody's KM or their formal, yeah. I'll come to other ones later. No, no, formal Kalyanamitra. Formal Kalyanamitra. Okay. If anybody's got a relationship of being a preceptor to any of these people, that's probably not going to be the case in here, is it? <coughs> not quite. Okay. Is anybody who's standing up got anybody in the room who they're preceptor to? You can include me if you like. Yeah, okay. Um, Alright, is anybody in a chapter with any of these people? Okay, so if you're still sitting down, if you have any sort of relationship, formal or informal, with anybody who's standing up, could you stand up? Yeah, sorry, Helen, we're doing a wee exercise of standing up. But you, you should be standing up because you've got lots of relationships with people yeah. in here. Yeah. So there you go. So this was to illustrate, you know, they say there's six degrees of separation in society. There's one degree of separation here, two at the most. And even, I see you're still sitting down, but you do know, yeah, you do. So get up. <laughs> All right, you can sit down again. It was just a wee exercise to... Yeah, it was just, uh, it was really interesting when we did that on the order weekend because we had about 65 people in the room or something and we had four people in the middle and within minutes everybody was standing up because everybody was in some kind of relationship with everybody else. What we didn't say, of course, was if you've fallen out with any of the people standing up. <laughs> so we only, we only did it for the positive. Thing. Okay, so... Callie, I mean, I'm not going to say much because it's been so spoken about. I just want to say to you, please believe that this is a really fantastic part of our order and community. And that there's something so precious about having friends that understand you on a deep level. There is something so precious about that. And it works. It's not just on a kind of physical level. But, you know, the fact that people can make these connections and just... You know, sometimes you hear when people are ill. We've got a couple of Indian Dhammacharnis living with us for a few months at Adistana. They were both privately ordained by Vajrashuri. And they were telling us last night in chapter, they were saying that a while back, Vajrashuri had an operation. And they didn't know exactly when this operation was going to happen. But completely, coincidentally, across India... All the women that Vajrashuri had ordained were meditating at the same time and just sending her all this metta for her operation. 
And then they got texts from people saying she'd had the operation. And afterwards, she said she knew. She'd seen every one of them in her mind when she was, when she was under the anaesthetic. She'd just called to mind every one of the people that she'd had in. I mean, isn't that just gorgeous? And it's not just woo-woo. It's real. You know, we really have those connections. Okay, sorry, um, I'll stop soon. So team-based right livelihood. Now, this is quite an interesting one, because when I got involved in the movement, we had the three C's. Communities, co-ops, and centres. Not long after that, the co-ops ceased to be co-ops, which was a shame because it ruined the alliteration <laughs> aspect. They became team-based right livelihoods, and it didn't sound quite the same. Centres, co-ops, and team-based right livelihood. You couldn't quite get through. I wanted three T's then, because I thought that would make sense. But anyway, um, we didn't. But I think it, it was one of the things that got me involved in the movement was the idea that I could not only live but work with people who shared my values. And there's t- uh, different aspects of right livelihood. There's a general aspect which, you know, all of us, if we're really seriously practicing the precepts, need to look at how we gain our livelihood and be clear that it's in line with our values. So whatever we're doing, you know, nothing to do with tree rat. Now, whatever we're doing in the world, if we really want our, our work to be part of the mandala of our life, then we need to look at it ethically. Is it something that supports our ethics? Does it support our values? Because if it doesn't, we'll come a cropper at some point. It'll become painful, basically. And some livelihoods are very obviously not right livelihoods. You know, like being a butcher for example, would be difficult to reconcile with the principles of right livelihood. But most livelihoods seem to me to be relatively neutral, and a lot will depend on how you do it and the context in which you do it. And some will be more obviously right livelihood. So individually, I think we need to look at our own livelihood in that way. But then specifically, it was one of the features of Tree Ratna. And I think one of the... important things was that it was team-based. So there's something about putting yourself into a situation where you're working alongside other people and you just get yourself mirrored back again and again and again. So I'm very sad that we're at the point, we're on the eve, as it were, almost, of um, our biggest right livelihood closing, Windhorse. Um, I mean, so many people, even people in this room, have worked in Windhorse evolution in one way or another. I have myself. And um, oh, it's just, it's been such an extraordinarily important contribution to the life of Tree Ratna. And I don't just mean economically by that. I mean, it has been important economically. The place I live in wouldn't, have, wouldn't exist without the contributions from Windhorse over the years. But more than that, the contribution that it's made for people to work together to really put their values, and the number of order members who've done their training, as it were, in Windhorse, I have no idea how many there are, but there's a lot of them. And one of the really lovely things about Windhorse is it's given a context from people from overseas, particularly India and Mexico, actually, where people have been able to come and they've had a whole situation that they could come into, which means they can get visas, for one thing. But also it just gives them this taste of what a holy 
you know, a Buddhist life can be by really sort of putting themselves into that. So I'm very sad that Windhorse is closing and I really wish people well that have been in that situation for so long. So Sangha actually says there are four essential aspects to a team-based right livelihood. So I'll just tell you in case anybody's thinking of setting up a team-based right livelihood. Firstly, the business must be run on ethical lines. Secondly, the business must give people sufficient support economically to allow them to live in a simple way. Thirdly, it should provide a framework for spiritual practice, especially friendship. And fourthly, it should make a profit, which is quite an interesting one, so that non-profit-making activities can be supported. So there's got to be that kind of aspect to it. Anyway, um, it's kind of gone a bit out of fa- it's gone a bit out of fashion, really, over the years. The idea of working together in team-based right livelihoods. I mean, we have people here who are doing that in a team-based right livelihood and clear vision. Um, Manisha's working with a development team, which I'd call a team-based right livelihood. There are others in here, I'm sure. Running the centre can be, I think, is a team-based right livelihood. But there's something about just working day to day with people. Um, I mean, I worked in the evolution shop in Valencia for quite a few years, and there was nothing quite like evolution at Christmas to really test your friendships and test your positive mental states or otherwise. You've done evolution, haven't you? Or, yeah, a wind horse. Yeah. Anyway, various people. Um... And I remember when we changed it from being co-ops, I was so disappointed. I thought it was a shame that we stopped being co-ops. I was quite involved in, um, quite early on in my involvement in the movement, we tried to set up a whole food shop in Glasgow before I moved out of London. And um, I got really inspired by ICOM, the International Cooperative Movement. And uh, we went to some of their um, seminars and fairs and I'll tell you this wee bit of history that you might find amusing and one of them we made a little right livelihood booklet which I've got a copy actually I've got a copy in archive and it was black and it had what looked like a hammer and sickle in the cover it was actually a kind of hammer inside some I can't remember quite what but from a distance it looked like a hammer and sickle till you looked closely and it was of course it was just tools and uh, it was Sidi Ratna and Damarati, I think, that designed the cover. And I wrote the text and said, it was all about right livelihood. And we went to this fair and we had a big poster up which said, the opiate of the people have arrived. (laughs) 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 Which I thought was very good. So it's just a wee bit of history. But I'd really like us to keep the spirit of that alive. You know, The other thing that we had up above it was uh, awareness is revolutionary which was when Asangarachita's aphorisms. And we thought with these two, you know, the opiate of the people have arrived and awareness is revolutionary. We are going to change the world. So we're still working at it. But, you know, I worry sometimes that we've lost our radical edge a wee bit. I remember years ago, Sabuti giving a talk in which he talked about being middle-aged, married and muddled as a worrying thing, you know. So, um, but that, I'm not reflecting on anybody's marital status because I don't think he was actually talking about marriage in that sense. He was talking about settling down, you know, whether that's in our relationships or in our working life or our home life or whatever. And um, 
I don't know, I was probably 40 already by then, which was already middle-aged. But I remember thinking, I will never, ever be middle-aged. I will die before I'm middle-aged. And I thought, oh, I better watch one thing now. But, you know, I, I just really want that spirit to stay alive in the order and the movement, that we don't settle down, that we're willing to face new challenges. And actually, I think we're on the cusp of something quite new at the moment, to be honest. Because the demographics have changed so much since the order was formed. We can't just use the old paradigms of what we thought it would be like. But I don't want to see us just going, oh, they didn't work. Let's just fall back into society's paradigms. We need to find what's radical now, in this day and age, and with the conditions that we have. You know, people have their life. They have their conditions. I'm not suggesting you'll chuck them in. But how can each and every one of us in our life find that radical edge? And how do we offer that to the world? The world needs it. It needs something much more radical. We are on the brink of destruction. Sorry. <laughs> but we are. You know, the world is, well, you know. Don't, were any of you at the international retreat earlier last year when Vadika gave his talk? Yeah. yeah. What a fantastic talk. And that's the kind of thinking that we need. We need more people who are willing to think along those lines. If you didn't hear it, get it and watch it. It was so good. It was called something or another. Can you remember? It was something about the economy, yeah. Anyway, if you put Vadika, the order members can tell you how to spell it if you don't know. Fantastic. He's got a book coming out called The Buddha on Wall Street. And uh, he's just looking at how we can, what kind of alternative paradigms can we find economically. But we need to do that in all the areas of our life. What are the radical paradigms? And how do we not only live them individually, but create the conditions for others? Okay, finally the arts. Now this is when I don't feel I can speak that strongly of myself. When I first got involved in the movement... <laughs> My sense of the arts was to go to an Ian Jury concert. And I remember, you're probably most of you too young to remember Ian Jury. But I remember being really upset because I lived in a community where we had a common purse. So we all put our money into this common purse and then we took out, you know, we got two pounds of each pocket money. This was in 1978. And uh, which two pounds of each wasn't very much when you lived in London. Anyway... People could get extra for certain things. So they could get extra to go to classical concerts <laughs> on the South Bank, right? So people would go off to listen to, you know, whatever. And don't get, actually, I really like classical music. But it wasn't what I wanted to spend my extra money on. I wanted to go, to, and I remember Ian Jury and the Blockheads came to play in East London, and I was like, can I have the money? And they wouldn't let me have it. Because it wasn't refined enough. Can you believe it? Anyway. And there were a few occasions like that. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I felt I could educate people and I could be educated. So there was a bit of, um, you know, sharing of something in that. Anyway, um, Banty has had a lot to say about the arts over the years. And uh, something, I can't remember where this is from, but he says, I have always seen the arts, either their practice or their appreciation, as something that has an important place in the spiritual life. 
Appreciation of beauty has the capacity to develop our sensitivity and emotional life and open up experience into meditative states. We derive something that supports our spiritual life. It is natural that within our own movement we appreciate the arts and create them. So this year uh, is Banti's 90th birthday. We hope we'll still have him with us in August when he'll be 90. And we've got a big weekend for order members at Adistana. And we're going to concentrate on the arts and we're going to have a whole programme of poetry and workshops and art appreciation and not quite sure what else. But I'd like to put in a word for the sciences, if I may. So somebody asked Banti some question and answer session that I was at. You know, you always concentrate on the arts, but what about science? You know, science has a lot to say about the world. And he said, well, it does, but I don't really know it. It's never been my background. So if any order members are moved by the sciences, then please would they share that with people and why? So that's what I'm going to do. So I'm not a scientist at all, but there are things in the sciences in the natural world that I just find fascinating. So I'm sure some of you have seen Brian Cox's programmes on the TV where he did the mysteries of uh, the wonders of the solar system and the wonders of um, the universe. So I'm going to read you a little quote from him. We live in a world of wonders, a place of astonishing beauty and complexity. We have vast oceans, giant mountains and breathtaking landscapes. If you think that's all there is, that our planet exists in magnificent isolation, then you're wrong. We're part of a much wider ecosystem that extends way beyond the top of our atmosphere. I think we're living through the greatest age of discovery our civilization has known. We voyage to the furthest reaches of the solar system. We photographed strange new worlds, stood in unfamiliar landscapes and tasted alien air. You see, that moves me. And um, music moves me, but the arts, the visual arts, I feel like such I'm clumsy with them. I don't really understand them. But I think the point is find what moves you and what opens you up. Because in opening ourselves up emotionally to something beyond ourselves, then we're open to something transcendent. So it's a way of actually refining our experience and opening our experience. So these are our six emphases. This is what we can offer to the world. It's what Banti thought we could offer in 1976. We can still offer them, but why should we? Because we need to. So I'll just read you a little bit from another talk, which was a really crucial talk for me. It's a talk called Evolutionary Extinction, a Buddhist view of current world problems. And it was also given in 1976. And in it, Bhante starts off by saying, he was asked to talk about this, and people said to him, well, as a Buddhist, do you have much to say about this? And he says, well, as a Buddhist, as a human being, you cannot turn your back on the world. Later on, he says, he's gone through all these different world problems. Interestingly, one of these world problems is the, um, the problem with the atmosphere, with, you know, eco the ecological issues. So quite interesting in 1976. He talks about all sorts of other things, war, poverty. And he says, we can say that a consideration of these world problems makes it clear to us 
that we have before us today only two alternatives. On the one hand is what we call evolution, spiritual development, becoming an individual. That's one alternative. And the other alternative is extinction. It really means that we as the human race, individual members of the human race, must develop spiritually or sooner or later we will perish. I'm sounding very doomsday really, aren't I, today? But I think it's true. I mean, there are scientists in the world who think we've already gone past the tipping point. We've gone past the point where there's any hope for the future of humanity. I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm a Buddhist. I believe in Paticca Samudpata. I believe that conditions create phenomena, and with the cessation of those conditions, the phenomenon ceases. I have no idea whether we're currently creating the conditions for the cessation of the phenomenon known as planet Earth. I have no idea, because I think all these things are so complex, they're never linear. They're so complex. There's such a range of conditions that we will never know, we'll never be able to isolate every condition. But does it matter? I think we have to act as if we know that there's trouble, but also act as if we believe we can do something. Because what's the alternative? Die? I'm not up for that yet. You know, what is the alternative? For me, the Bodhisattva act is to act with the knowledge that I have no idea. No idea at all whether these conditions will continue. Even in terms of our order and our movement, I have no idea how long it will continue after Banti's death. No idea. But I'm going to do everything I possibly can to act as if I can make a difference. And I do believe that we do make a difference. Small things from small acorns grow great oak trees. And we will never know. So I ask you to believe that the Dharma has something to offer the world and to practice it with all our hearts and to offer it to the extent that we can to a suffering world. I come to you with four gifts. The first gift is a lotus flower. Do you understand? My second gift is a golden net. Can you recognize it? My third gift is a shepherd's round dance. Do your feet know how to dance? My fourth gift is a garden planted in a wilderness. Could you work there? I come to you with four gifts. Dare you accept them? Thank you.